0: Well, I now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of the book of the prophet Joel. Turn to Joel chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 17 this morning. And we'll have many lessons in this passage about repentance So I'll read to you now Joel chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. This is God's holy Word as He gave to the prophet Joel. And so let's attend with reverence to its reading, knowing that it comes infallibly, without error, from the living God. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpets in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? That sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do pray indeed that you would bless the, the reading, the preaching, the hearing of your word. That it might not be falling on deaf ears as it were. But rather that you would carry it from our ears to our hearts that our lives might be changed hereby, that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ, that we might indeed be doers and not only hearers of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, so far in the book of Joel, we have seen that the prophet prophesied during a time of famine uh, when locusts and drought had destroyed much of the food sources for the people of Judah. We also saw last time that there was a day coming that God was threatening soon when the Lord would judge Judah by the invasion of an enemy army. In light of these judgments, the Lord now explicitly calls the nation to repent, to return to him. That's... Literally what repentance means in the Hebrew, the word for repent it means to turn around, to turn away from sin back to the Lord. The word used most commonly in the New Testament is metanoia, which means a change of a mind, but it doesn't just mean changing your mind like I, I thought I would have ice cream for dessert and I decided to have cake. Uh, it's, it's actually more like having an oil change in your car. Uh, you remove the old mind and the new mind is placed in. So this is, again, the uh, a mind that is turned toward God and not and away from sin. It's, it's a turning back, a returning to the Lord. So God is calling here for repentance. And from this passage, we learn that repentance has to be conducted in several ways. Number one, with all of the heart. True repentance is with all of the heart. And secondly, it's with genuine sorrow for sin. And thirdly, It has to be done in recognition of God's mercy. We have to recognize that God is a God who is willing to forgive in order that we would turn and come to him. And we also see fourth, and these are coming in the order that we find them in this scripture. This isn't an order of importance or anything, but uh, this is just the order we find them in this passage. Fourth, we find that it needs to be done for God's glory. Fifth, it needs to be done thoroughly. And as we'll see, this isn't just talking about that I have to repent of my sins thoroughly. Um, I I will stumble again and it's not like God won't forgive me today because he knows I'll sin tomorrow or something like that. Uh, But we're talking here about uh, it has to be done at the level, uh, it has to involve all of the people that are guilty of the sin and deed that are associated with it corporately. If individual sins need to be repented of individually, corporate sins need to be dealt with corporately, repented of corporately. Sixth, we see that repentance has to be treated as a priority, has to be conducted as a priority, and then lastly, it has to be conducted prayerfully. In verse 12, the Lord begins this passage with the words, Now therefore... And that's one of those key words, one of those conjunctions that helps us key in on what God is saying here. Uh, Therefore is important. As one Bible teacher I encountered years ago, and I've repeated it many times, said that uh, if you see a therefore in Scripture, think about what it's there for. And the same thing would be true of, of its inverse conjunction, for. If God is saying for... Uh, as a conjunction, what's what's it there for? That really helps us understand how the scripture is working together here. And what therefore means is that because the Lord has already brought, in this context, judgments on the land and now is threatening more judgments, now is the time to repent. So because he's brought judgments on the land, now is the time to repent. The Hebrew can actually be read, yet even now. Yet even now when I have brought this famine on the land and all this difficulty, yet even now when I'm telling you that if you don't repent, there's going to be a greater judgment coming of the, the invasion of this army. Even after these judgments have begun, it's not too late to repent. Because God is warning of further judgments to come, now is the time to return to Him before those judgments actually come upon you. And the Lord reveals several things here about the repentance for which he is calling, the repentance he desires. The first thing is, such repentance must be conducted with all the heart. The first part of verse 12, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. With all the heart, all the inward being. True repentance cannot be half-hearted, in other words. It can't be, yeah, I guess I'll turn from that sin. No, it has to be, I will turn from that sin. I will hate that sin. I will reject that sin. We can't serve two masters. We can't serve Satan and God. We can't serve the flesh. We can't serve sin and also serve the Lord. True repentance is a turning wholeheartedly to God. And this is not to say that you won't stumble and fail in this from time to time. And what God is expecting of you when you repent is to turn wholly to him away from sin. In verse 13, the Lord says, So rend your heart and not your garments. True repentance cannot be mere outward signs of regret. You know, rending one's clothes was an outward sign, an outward expression in the culture of the Old Testament Near East, the, 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 the cultural milieu in which the Old Testament was written. It was a sign of sorrow. In distress, someone would tear his clothes. In distress. Think about what kind of distress that was showing in a day when you couldn't just go to Walmart and buy a new shirt right after you ripped one. He <laughs> had to make a new one. So, in that context, here, the Lord is calling for outward signs of repentance. We will see that here. There's fasting, there's weeping, there's mourning. But merely showing outward signs of grief would not suffice. In Psalm 51, verse 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Well, it's not like David could say, Well, therefore, I can't do the sacrifices that God has commanded me to do. No, he still had to do those, but those are meaningless if the heart is not contrite before the Lord. Rend your hearts and not your garments, God says. Repentance must be conducted with all the heart. Secondly, we see repentance must be conducted with genuine sorrow for sin. We really have to be sorry for it. The second part of verse 12. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Those are all signs of sorrow. Since we've just established that we can't just be merely outwardly doing these things, these displays, we have to conclude that God is commanding here, then, genuine sorrow. You have to have genuine sorrow at your sins. God is not fooled. If you say, sorry, but you really aren't, He knows what's in your heart, what's in your mind. He's not pleased to forgive sins from which you and I are not actually wanting to turn. He's pleased when people truly turn to him. Now I want to be clear here and make sure you understand what I'm not teaching. I'm not telling you that a true Christian ceases to sin in this life. And that unless you cease to sin, God will never accept you. God has accepted you if your trust is in Jesus Christ because Jesus has covered those sins. You're still going to stumble in sin in this life. But if you love the Lord, you will hate your sin. And therefore, you will genuinely reject it. You will be turning from it. And when you stumble into it again, you'll be sorry. You will really have sorrow for it and you'll turn from it again. If you love your savior, savior, you will not want to offend Him. Remember an old retired pastor who since has passed on years ago telling me that, that that's really what fear of the Lord is about. That he feared his wife not because of what she would do to him while he slept or something he trusted her. And he knew that when he was awake he was a lot bigger than she was, but... What did he have to fear from her? But he sure feared displeasing her because he loved her. If we love God, we should not want to displease him. As Paul in Romans 7, you will find yourself doing what you hate. But hating it's a big difference. That shows the Holy Spirit is working in you. Hating sin and therefore turning from it is key. Your sins offend God. And if you love Him, they will offend you too. Each sin, from the least to the greatest, as we might count them, are an offense against your Holy Creator. They grieve the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you if you are a believer. Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Your sins grieve God. If you love him, that will grieve you too. I cannot say I would be a liar if I said I have never sinned against my wife in the years that I've been married. But when I realize I have, I grieve it. It hurts me because it hurts her. And the same thing should be true and even more so in my relationship with the Lord. When he's grieved at what I do and think and say, I should be grieved too. And so genuine repentance involves being truly sorry for your sins, having true sorrow. Fasting is, is among other things, a sign of grief, a sign of sorrow. Weeping and mourning, as God commands here, certainly are displays of grief. Repentance has to be conducted with genuine sorrow for sin. Thirdly, repentance must be conducted in recognition of God's mercy. You know, why would you even go to God in repentance if you couldn't trust that He was merciful? The rest of verse 13 and verse 14. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Repentance, genuine repentance is never an empty act. It's never a futile act because God is willing to forgive. God is ready and willing to forgive. We'll see more of this next time, Lord willing. First John 1, 8 and 9 If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. There's another lesson there, just as an aside. The reason God is faithful and just to forgive our sins, if we're in Christ, is because Christ already paid for them, and he doesn't do a double jeopardy here. He doesn't make the, the penalty be paid twice. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if we confess our sins? If we turn to God in repentance? God is gracious. He gives good things that we don't deserve. He's merciful. He withholds bad things that we do deserve. He is right to be angry at our sins, but He's slow to anger. He's kind. He prefers to give good things. He relents from doing harm, Joel says. That is, whenever he threatens punishment for sins, there is always a window of opportunity to repent and avoid the consequences that he's threatening. Think of the prophet Jonah preaching to Nineveh. The proclamation the Lord gave him to preach was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But Nineveh repented. And God relented. Yes, Nineveh was eventually overthrown, but it wasn't overthrown in that 40 days. God did not change his mind. He knew all all along what was going to happen, but he turned back from the course that, from a human perspective, he appeared to be on. And Jonah confessed that he had actually wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He wanted Nineveh to be overthrown. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. He wanted the Assyrians to be overthrown. They were a threat to Israel and in fact became God's instrument for destroying the northern kingdom of Israel later on. And Jonah feared that if he preached this warning, the Ninevites would repent and God would not destroy the city. We read that in Jonah 4 verse 2. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this the fact that God relented from destroying Nineveh, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Repentance relies on that fact. It relies on the fact that God is merciful. Otherwise, it would be of no avail. Repentance must be conducted in recognition of God's mercy. And notice there, he says, "If who knows? If we repent that God might not bring this disaster He has threatened upon us, that He will bring us to a point where there are grain offerings and wine offerings back into the temple because we have the prosperity that we once enjoyed. Repentance has to be conducted in recognition of God's mercy. Fourth, (coughs) repentance has to be conducted for God's glory. Verse 15: Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. In ancient Israel, the blowing of the trumpet, the shofar, uh, called the people to assemble. And it could be for action. Think of when Israel was in the wilderness and they would set forth from one place to another, the trumpet was blown. It could be for war. It could be for worship. And here the trumpet blast is calling a sacred assembly, one, one that, as we saw in chapter 1, as well, involves fasting. But this is a, a call to corporate worship, a sacred assembly. If repentance is not a worshipful act, it is not sufficient. And I'm not saying that you have to wait for a formal corporate worship service to repent of your sins nor does there have to be a worship service dedicated to repentance for repentance to be genuine. Now this is a major circumstance here where the whole society has to be called to repentance, but in the case of of corporate sins, it's appropriate that uh, they would be repented of corporately, and that might involve public worship. But whether individual or group-wide, genuine repentance has to be worshipful in a sense. what i mean by that is that it cannot merely be for ourselves for example true repentance is not happening if we're only turning from sin to avoid judgment that's part of it here you'll notice the the call the recognition that god is merciful and who knows if he will relent from these things that he's further threatened we've got this famine going on because of the locusts and the drought and there's this threatened invasion and maybe god won't send it if we repent but it can't simply be To avoid the circumstances of our sins that we don't want. The outcomes of our sins that we don't want. I'll stop doing something because I'm afraid of the consequences. That's not sufficient repentance. Rather true repentance has to be for the glory of God too. In the last part of verse 17. There's a concern that people might dishonor the name of the God of Israel. If he does not forgive his people. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? There has to be a concern for what is being said of God because of this. You know, that's a great impetus for repentance too, isn't it? When I as a Christian sin and people see it, what does that say about Christ to the world? So when I repent, return to Him, that should say, To the world, oh, that wasn't Christ that made Daniel act like that. He's changing, he's turning from that action because of Christ. True repentance will be for God's glory. Fifth, repentance has to be conducted thoroughly. And as I said, I don't just mean that it has to be a thorough turning from a particular sin by a particular person. In this case, we're talking about the breadth of the number of people who engage in repentance. It has to be thorough in regard to who is repenting of what sin. If the sin in question is, or sins, plural really, in questions are sins uh, of an individual, well, he or she needs to repent. If the sins are of a congregation, the whole congregation needs to repent. And it's not just to say that that, well, we can say, well, I didn't engage in that, so the rest of you repent, and I won't. Know. You notice the whole society here is called to repent here. If the sins are of the nation, the whole nation needs to repent. And look at verse 16. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. In fact, in the first part of verse 17, also let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. In this case, everyone is called to do this service of repentance. And how many of the babies that were called to that act of repentance do you think had actually engaged in the sins that brought this on the society? No. So it's a sin of the society, so everyone is called to act in repentance. Repentance has to be conducted thoroughly. Six, then we see repentance must be conducted as a priority. Look at the last part of verse 16. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. That's a really odd thing. It might not sound odd to you and me, but if you were an ancient Israelite or an ancient person from the from the kingdom of Judah here, you would think that's weird. Ordinarily, In the Old Testament, the bride and groom were exempted from societal responsibilities for a year. For example, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So in other words, he can't be... Uh, charged with any business. That means uh, uh, an official, for example, a, a government official or king can't say, I'm sending you on a journey to Syria with a message for me or something like that. No. Nope. Can't do that to him. <laughs> He's, he just got married. He needs to stay home with his wife for a year. But here in Joel too, even bridegrooms and their brides are not exempted. They must come and join in public repentance. And the the language there of chambers and rooms even means people who are getting ready for their wedding today need to stop and come and repent. Repentance is a higher priority even than other very important and valuable things. Repentance has to be conducted as a priority. And finally, number seven, repentance must be conducted prayerfully. Prayerfully. Verse 17, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The priests weeping, as we noted, is part of the thoroughness of repentance, but also notice the prayerfulness that is necessary here. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we read this promise that the Lord made to King Solomon. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So notice that repentance is involved there. They have to turn from their wicked ways. But part of that is praying and seeking God's face. You might have noticed that things are not going maybe as well for the United States of America lately as they have for the last several decades at least. You know, we've had ups and downs, but things are a little bit worse economically for us. And Maybe they're turning around, maybe not. There's a lot of debate about that. But things are as bad as they've been since the 1970s. Now is the time to repent. We've seen economic difficulty and rapid inflation. Now is the time to repent. It looks ever more likely that some of our leaders might stumble and bumble us into a a war. Now is the time to repent. We see what repentance has to involve. Keep in mind these principles apply to you individually as well. Each of us can be doing these things individually that this is how we should be repenting of our own sins but this is also how we engage in societal repentance. Conduct your repentance with all your heart. No half-hearted turning to God. Do it with genuine sorrow for sin. Your sins grieve God. You have to Hate your sins. You have to be grieved by them. Because they grieve your Savior. Do it in recognition of God's mercy. What's the point of repenting if you can't trust that God actually does relent? Flee to Him, not from Him, in other words. So many of us think that that we can flee away from God and deal with our sins, and clean ourselves up, and then we'll come back to Him and say, See what I'm like, God? I'm somebody who dealt with sin. That's not how we deal with sin. We flee to Him and say, You're a merciful God. Like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, who comes to the temple and just says, so he comes to where he, God's dwelling place is on earth. He goes to Him and he says, Have mercy on me, miserable Sinner. Flee to him, not from him, for he is merciful. And do it for the glory of God. Again, if you love him, don't you want it to glorify him? Make make repentance a higher priority also than other important things. There are lots of important things in life. Repentance is a really, really high priority. And repent prayerfully. Seek God's face in prayer. Ask His aid in your repentance. And ask for forgiveness even as you are turning from those sins. Let's pray. Lord, grant that we might truly turn from sin unto You. May our repentance by Your help be conducted wholeheartedly with genuine sorrow for sin in recognition of Your mercy to Your glory. Let us do it thoroughly. If there are individual sins, let us repent of them individually. And if there are corporate sins, let us repent of them corporately. Cause our nation to repent of our national sins. Let us do our repentance as a priority. And ever let us conduct it prayerfully. In Jesus' name. Amen.